you can turn over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. This is one of those stories that doesn't get a whole lot of attention. I think the last time we covered it is when we did the book of Acts. But it's still one of those ones we all know about. What happens when the unusual becomes usual? Have we moved on to higher things or out of our boundaries? In this particular scripture, we hear about some unusual things that went on with the ministry of Paul. But sometimes what is supposed to be unusual becomes usual. You know, if, uh, if a married, married couple and uh, whoever gets home the last, whether it be a husband or wife from wherever the, that they're at, if they always get home at a certain time and they get home at that time again, are they late? They may be later than the, than the first spouse who got home, but they're not late because it's the usual. But sometimes what happens usually, or is unusual, we consider to be usual. And this is where some confusion gets in. Last week we're looking at what happens when evil steps over the line. Were you on, were you watching for that a little bit more this week? When evil tries to step into your life? Here in Acts chapter 19, let's go all the way back to verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, if Paul asked this question, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? How many of you all know it's a legitimate question? There's many people today who teach that when you get born again, you receive all the Holy Spirit that there is. If that's so then how is it the person who got the, the revelation of the church age, Paul, how is he asking this question? If it's not a valid question to ask whether you received the Holy Spirit when you got saved, he ought to know about it. And he wouldn't have asked it. But he asked a group of people who got saved after Jesus had been resurrected. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you got saved? So he was, obviously they got saved at a time when they could have received the Holy Spirit. If they had gotten saved before Jesus had ascended and sent the Holy Spirit and in the upper room the Holy Spirit came down upon them, if they had been saved before that, he wouldn't have asked that question. Because they would have been saved before, they would have happened to receive the Holy Spirit after. But they obviously were saved afterwards. And some time afterwards, remember Paul, he, uh, he wasn't a believer when Jesus was, was uh, resurrected and uh, taken up into heaven. He was still an unbeliever then. And it had been a number of years since since all that had had gone on. So this group of people had become born again. And so Paul said, well, when you got saved during the New Testament era, during the church age, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, we haven't even heard us that there was a Holy Spirit. He said, well, what baptism did you get baptized in? And that's the, the next part there. In verse 3. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. 
So this, of course, today there's lots of controversy over this. Sometimes people walk into a church and they find out that there's some tongue-talking people there and they walk right out. They think it's all uh, heresy and you guys are just possessed and, and weird and all sorts of stuff. And yet for Paul, it was very normal. People in the New Testament is very normal. Then, of course, they came up with this doctrine. It's not in the Word of God anywhere, but they came up with this doctrine. Well, after the uh, apostles, we don't need the Holy Spirit anymore to come in that, in that way. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> we surely do need the Holy Spirit and, and for Him to move just as much then. But for Paul, he knew that in order for us to have a full born-again experience, we needed also to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's still people out there who, and I was, I was born again in the Baptist church. And uh, we didn't teach anything more than you got saved. That's it. And then when I found out that there was more to it, well, I, it took me a little while <laughs> before I jumped in. But once I found out, I said, oh, this is good. And so I, uh, I jumped in too. And I'm, gl- I'm glad that I did. And uh, there's people out there who say, you know, well, tongues, speaking in tongues is wrong. And the devil inspired and, and all this sort of stuff. And of course, all kinds of confusion comes out about it. People just don't know. Now, just know this. You can get to heaven without ever talking in tongues. You can get to heaven. That's not your ticket into heaven. Your ticket into heaven is receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. But once we get in the family, God's got a gift for you. It's called the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Now, see, the Holy Spirit will come upon you when you get born again. But when you invite him in, he comes in you. He fills you up. He fills you up. Now, the, the evidence that they had in the New Testament was that they spoke with other tongues. And if you don't have that and you want to have that experience, we want to lay hands on you so that you can have that. There's no reason in the world why you should go through life without it. It's not complicated, it's not hard, and it's not messy. But how much better is it to be able to pray in a language that you don't know because then the Holy Spirit can pray for you. You know, there's some stuff that God wants us to be able to pray for ourselves, but we just don't know. How many of you know all that there is to know about the Word of God? How many here know everything about their future? Well, the Holy Spirit does. (laughs) He can pray through you. So I thank God that we can have that going on and that He can pray pray through us. Amen. He'll pray mysteries. And see, the, the, the devil hates this. That's why he wants to get confusion out about it. Because if you can pray mysteries, if you can pray things about your life, about what's coming up, they, they can be some powerful prayers. But he doesn't know what they are. He's not tapped into that. But you can you can be tapped into it. You can be going. Now, in the, in the book of Acts, they also had times when they spoke in tongues and other people understood them. That's a different type of tongue. There's also in the, in the book of, in the book of Acts in the church, there were people who got up and had an utterance in tongues and that utterance was interpreted. That's different yet. There's different types of, of speaking in tongues. There's, there's tongues where you speak a tongue you don't know, but someone else does. That's a known tongue. Remember the disciples in the day of Pentecost when the day of Pentecost had fully come that the Holy Spirit descended down upon them and they spoke with tongues and the people there heard them and they said, how is it we hear them in our own language? Because they noticed that they were unlearned men because the Holy Spirit gave them utterance to speak. I've heard church services where people got up and spoke in other tongues and they just thought they were praying or just using the same language that they prayed with. But somebody else got up and said, how did that person know the language I spoke? In fact, they even spoke it with the right dialect. The, they had the right accent. It was amazing. I haven't heard that language. And they came up to them expecting them to, to understand them and they had no understanding of the language. Let's see, that's the act of God. 
And there's there's tongues that's assigned to unbelievers, and that's a sign that would be to unbelievers. There's also one that the unbelievers think, and you're all nuts. <laughs> and that's why in the, in the, when Paul explains it, he says, this can be a sign, and, it, and other people come in, they say, man, you're all crazy. But that's what it is. There's two different things. If people just come in and they hear you speaking in your prayer language, mysteries unto God, and they don't understand it, then they think that you're, you know, drunk or weird or, or whatever it might be. Um, but there's a, there's an utterance that God will give you to speak out to other people. Sometimes it'll be an utterance that's interpreted, and sometimes it's interpreted because that person knows the, the language. But anyway, that's all side note. When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, in some churches, you know, how long, some, some time ago, I don't know if they're still doing it now, but I know for a while they used to teach you to tarry for the Holy Spirit. You had to wait because they had to wait for the day of Pentecost to come. So as they tarried, you have to tarry. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. They waited until the Holy Spirit was, was poured out. He was poured out. There's no more tarrying. There's no more waiting. He's already here. <laughs> they were waiting for him to be sent, to become, to come. He's already sent. He's already here. There's no more need to tarry. <laughs> you just believe God like you do anything else that you receive it. And that's what they did. He laid hands on them. The Holy, they, Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Now verse 8. And when he, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the, the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So he was in the synagogue. This is where it was comfortable for Jews to be and he was probably comfortable being there. And, uh, I don't know how the synagogues were set up but they were probably all set up pretty similarly and he was used to the, the atmosphere and, and what would be there. But as they were reasoning and persuading some and some be persuaded and some wouldn't be and then all of a sudden some became hardened it said. But when some were hardened, not all, they just need some how many of y'all know all you need is a few people to start messing things up? When some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, which I hear was apparently, it was a well-to-do school that he had used. And uh, they, he had meetings there. And this is where they would, they would go on. So they separated themselves from this, these groups, who, uh, these people who wanted to harden themselves. Some were hardened. They, they desired it. There's people today that are going to harden themselves to the gospel. They're going to harden themselves to the truth. If they're going to harden themselves, there isn't too much you can do. And Paul just said, well, I'm just going to leave here and go over here. And he said to them, into, um, wrong one, I'm sorry. Where do we leave off at? I didn't turn my page. There we go. And this continued for two years. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So imagine this. He moves out of the synagogue. He goes over to the school, uh, the school here. And he, he starts teaching out it for two years. And just about the entire area of Asia hears about it. Because of what's going on with Paul. Here in this one place. That's pretty good, isn't it? Now he withdrew from some of these people who didn't believe. Sometimes you have people in your life who don't believe and they're, they're hardened to the things of the gospel and you're trying to reach out to them and trying to reach out to them and trying to reach out to them. There are some times you need to leave that. You need to go on. You keep going after the same ones. You're wasting your effort. You're making them even more hard. You're not going after the people that are received. So 
he went after the people who would receive and nearly all Asia heard about it. Now, if he doesn't leave the synagogue and the people that harden themselves against the gospel and go into the, the school of Tyrannus, if he doesn't do all that, this next part probably doesn't happen. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, already God had been doing miracles through the hands of Paul, but now we step into the area of unusual miracles. Now, is laying on of hands a, a uh, usual miracle? Absolutely. Jesus commissioned all kinds of people. Go out there, lay hands on, on the sick. Even when Jesus couldn't do anything else, what did it say he could do? He lay hands on a few sick people and they were healed. So that's not unusual to lay hands on people. It might be unusual in some churches, but it's not supposed to be unusual. It's supposed to be very commonplace. Now I hope that you all, if you need hands laid on you, don't be bashful about it. We put it there on the on the form just so we make sure. But, you know, if you just walked up to an usher and said, I want hands laid on me today, we would make sure. You know, during the offering time, we, we spend time pressing in the presence of God for the anointing. And if you want hands laid on you, our guys are ready. When they come up and do the offering, they are ready to pray over you, lay hands on you. But you got to ask. You're going to have hands laid on you. you got to ask for it. People don't call you, can I lay hands on you that you may be healed? That's wrong. If you need hands laid on you, you need to come up and say, I need hands laid on me. Will you pray for me that I receive? And then people can pray for you that you receive. That's how you do it. So laying on of hands is not unusual. So, But it doesn't list what the unusual miracles are, does it? But there were some unusual miracles. We've already had some miracles listed that Paul had done. But now we're, we're getting in this area, this territory of unusual miracles. This didn't happen right away. He's been here at the school teaching for two years. He got away from the unbelievers, got away from the people that were hardened, and he got among people that wanted to hear. And things began to grow and grow and grow. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. We already mentioned Apollos early on. It didn't mention Apollos. It didn't mention Peter. It didn't mention James or John. It said that God did the unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. Now, Paul didn't write the book of Acts. He wrote a lot of the New Testament, but he did not write the book of Acts. It's one of those pet peeves of mine. But you ever hear people say Paul wrote most of the New Testament? Ignorance bothers me. It just really bothers me when I hear ignorance speaking like that. Paul did not write most of the, most of the New Testament. Luke did. If you look at the writings of Paul, and compared to the writings of Luke, Luke wrote more than Paul did. He only wrote two books, but his two books were a lot longer than Paul's. So, um, most of the New Testament comes from a Gentile. <laughs> Think about that. Because <laughs> Luke was a Gentile. So he's writing the book of Acts here. If, if it was Paul, you might understand why Paul was the one singled out. But Luke is the one writing this book. And he singles out Paul and said, now God did unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. Luke, of course, followed Paul. All the places that Paul was going, when you see the narrative written in the book of Acts as to what happened, more than likely it's because Luke is right there. Luke's probably on the ship. He probably is on the shipwreck. He's probably on the island. Luke's right there. He doesn't sit there and say, I'm here. I went through it too. But more than likely he was. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs 
or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, we don't talk about this a whole lot except when we come on this passage. This is about the only places you, that you, you see this. But how many of you all know that there's many churches and many places you can go and uh, have handkerchiefs and, and such, such things prayed over and then they send them out for all sorts of stuff? It is such a misunderstanding of Scripture. Now, you have to... You have to break apart the sentence to mess this up. But they do. First off, what did it say? What kind of miracles did Paul? Unusual. unusual miracles. And we don't list all the unusual miracles. The only one, the only unusual miracle that is listed is that handkerchiefs and aprons would be touched by Paul or touch his body and go out and things would happen. But now it's become usual and commonplace. Now to me it would seem that this is something that God does, but it's not something that God does often. And it's not something that God does with everyone. And it's not something I just believe God for. Well, I'm just going to believe God that this will work for me. That doesn't seem to be something that, that goes on that way. It seemed to be something that Paul pressed in, Paul kept going, and all of a sudden these things, I don't know, how do you even figure that out? How do you even figure out that that would work? I don't know, but you know, anymore you got churches anymore, they'll, they'll have a pile. Go out there and get the cloths and bring them up. We're going to lay hands on them, and then you just take them out to the, to, to whoever. And then people are out there, well, I don't need to go out to church, I just send my cloth over. <laughs> You have to so misunderstand this verse of Scripture to be able to do that. And we'll show you so you, you, that uh, that won't happen anymore. <laughs> but I have seen churches. Remember we're talking about the, the Jesus casting out the money changer and so forth? I have seen churches that if you want that to go on, that's fine, perfectly fine, but you got to go into their back bookstore and buy one of their cloths. Wow. Yeah, you got to buy one of their cloths because they won't take your cloth. You have to have... They're actually there. <laughs> you have to use one of their cloths so for ten ninety five, <laughs> you can go back in there and, and get one of the spiritual cloths, and then they'll come up there because you know if the preacher is going, whoever it might be, you see if he sees that's not one of our cloths, well he will you don't have to pray over that one. That actually goes on. That's amazing. But this is an unusual miracle, which means it's not something that was done by everybody, but it was done. It did go on. But look at what he says here. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons. Now I've seen a lot written about the handkerchiefs and a lot written about the aprons. And I've meditated on it, pondered on it a a good bit. And uh, some write that because this was a very high-end school, that uh, the particular things, particular type of cloth they're talking about is um, high-end things that people would wear. Um, the handkerchief being like a turban that some of the guys would would wear, and um, an apron, uh, they, something else that uh, high end clothing. And I, I can't see that Paul was just doing that because it said that all in the very passage, the, all Asia was hearing him. So if all Asia was hearing him, then you had common people, you had middle class people, you had upper class, you had everybody coming to the meetings, not just the the ones that that had the higher end clothing. So that just doesn't jive with, with me just from the passage and what I'm, I'm getting from here. But one of the things that would happen is in this area where he's at here with Ephesus and, and the, the surrounding region, 
they would have certain gods that they would do, and they would have, uh, uh, I believe, uh, Artemis was one of them, and they would, uh, they actually had uh, metal workers, and they would make these gods. So when you came out to the city and you visited, uh, you have souvenirs. You know, you go to, to the uh, Empire State Building, you can buy an Empire State Building. You go to uh, Paris and uh, go to the tower. What's the tower over there? Eiffel Tower, that's the one. If you go to the Eiffel Tower, you can get one of one of those. If you go to Italy, you can get the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And it's leaning in a whole bit. And you can bring that on home. So you can bring these things home to remind you. Well, they would sell these gods. Little little Artemises that you could take on home. And, you, and this is part of the money trade that they would do. And so they would be making them and then selling them. Well, when you were in this type of business, one of the things that you would do is you would uh, you would wear an apron. Any of the guys that were in that kind of business, if you were in the leather business, if you were in the metal business, if you were in the, you would have the, uh, an apron on. Now I've tried out an apron in the shop. You know, I got a shop, I haven't, I do not want to wear an apron. I have tried ones that are shorter. I don't like them. I went out and I got myself a vest. I said, surely a vest will work. I got a nice light vest. It's got lots of pockets on it for all sorts of stuff. I put it on and it says, this is not how I work. And so the vest just sits there in the shop on a little hook. <laughs> and there it is. Uh, it seems like a good idea. It just doesn't work for me. So it just kind of sits there and goes. But these guys, especially if you were in the metal trade, and that metal comes flying out at you, you need something tough that's going to protect your body from the, uh, the, th- the things that would come. So uh, they, would, they would have this apron on. So this is one of the things this apron could be was that it would seem that the handkerchiefs were brought by the women and the men would bring the aprons. But there has been some supposition that perhaps the women brought their husband's apron and Paul would pray over them and they would send them on back. <laughs> There's some supposition on that. But I want to break down this verse for you here so that you can understand it and then you can decide whether that's actually something that could go on or not. Now there's a there's an anointing that's on Paul to preach the word, and there's an anointing on Paul in order to do the miracles. I want you to notice something that is completely missing from the book book of Acts. Paul never steps into another anointing. The unusual miracles just began. Sometimes we think that I need a new anointing. I need something new in my life in order for the no, the same anointing you got will work. Take a look at this in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. This is Jesus. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. This was his custom. When he came into a synagogue, this is what he would do. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. This was his custom. So when he would go into a place, this is what he would do. He would read from this passage of Isaiah. So uh, when we think of the synagogue he's going into, you know, we have we would, if we would have a synagogue here in Warrington and Jesus came to minister, he would come into the synagogue and he would open up and he would introduce himself in this way. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
And then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, he began. That means he would say more than that, right? Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now I want to ask you this. How many times was he anointed? How many things did he do? You see, one anointing is all you need. You can grow into that anointing. You've been anointed to do things. Now grow into it. I don't need to come before God. God, I need a new anointing. God says, don't disregard the old one. Sometimes we've done that. We've disregarded the old anointing. You may not be walking in all the things that anointing has, but it doesn't mean it's not there. Let's take a look at this. First off, this word back over here in our book of Acts. And God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to who? They were brought to the... Say it again. Were they brought to anyone else? No. They were brought to the... Sick. That's who they were brought to. Now this particular word for sick is, is interesting. It is a person who is frail in health. In, in fact, they're, they're looked at as being so physically weak that they are unable to travel. It's not safe for them to travel. Their condition is so delicate that they're more than likely shut in, homebound, not able to go anywhere or do anything, just be in bed. This is what this word is talking about. So when it would take, they would take the handkerchiefs and the aprons, they would take them to the sick. They would take them to people who were homebound, who could not get out, who were so frail and such a weakened condition that they could not leave and come to the meeting. This is who they were brought to. Now look at the rest of this verse. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. Now that means he put these aprons and handkerchiefs on while he was ministering. Uh, we don't know. Somehow they were on his body. Apparently it doesn't matter how they were on his body or how long they were on his body. All that matters is that they were. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, this word here for diseases means illnesses or conditions caused by invisible entities. It's the Greek word nasos. And I'm just going to read this for you. In ancient Greek literature, this word was specifically used to describe illnesses caused by invisible entities such as demons. The word portrayed people who were tormented physically or mentally, people who were afflicted by an unseen entity, or those who are vexed with lunacy or madness. It would also be used to describe plagues that were attributed to demonic inspiration, disasters, physical, physically terminal diseases, illnesses, from which medical science had absolutely no way to get you to recover. Now it said that, let's read that scripture again, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases, those things that are caused by something outside, 
left them or departed. That word there for departed or or left is the word that, that is used, or the word that is used here. It was actually a first century medical term and described people who had been completely cured of a disease. It was never used for someone who had a temporary cure. It was only used for those who had a permanent one. So when it says that those diseases left them, what he's saying is that they took these handkerchiefs or these aprons to the people who were so sick they couldn't get out of their homes and the diseases departed from them on a permanent basis. And the evil spirits went out of them. The evil spirits went out of them. That would be the spirit causing the affliction. It went out of them. Now, it's really easy to read this as three conditions. Those people that are sick, those people that are diseased, and those people that are demon-possessed. How many have ever heard this verse of Scripture and have come away with the idea that you could have prayer cloths go out on a demon-possessed person and a demon-possessed person would would be cured? But you see, it all flows together. We're talking about people, one group of people, that are so sick they can't get out of the home. This sickness is a sickness that is caused by something outside of them. An entity, a demon, spirit, something. It may be in the form of a madness. It may be in the form of something where they can't get up off the bed. Whatever it might be, they cannot move around. They cannot get anywhere. They're stuck. And Paul would have these things come on him. Maybe he got a word of knowledge one time. And God says, take that apron, take that handkerchief, and carry that around while you're ministering. Give it back to him. I mean, God, he, he got all kinds of words from God, didn't he? He could certainly get that one. More than likely, that's probably how it came. Word, of, word came to him, inspiration came to him, and said, do this. And he probably said, all right, now take this to this person, and they will be healed. But you see, God never healed anyone without their willingness to be healed. Right? God never cast out a demon out of anyone not willing to be cast out of. He always had the permission. If it was a child, he had permission of the parents. When he had the demoniac, remember the story we went over last time? That demoniac came and worshipped him. Showed him, I want to be free of this thing. And then the, the demons took over. But he himself wanted to be free. And certainly after, afterwards you saw he wanted to stay with Jesus. He wanted to follow him. His, he, wanted to, he wanted to be free of that thing. He needs permission. You can't just pray over some cloth, put it on some pile, some, uh, some meeting, and carry this out and slip it to somebody and have the demon spirit leave them. That's not what this verse is talking about. But there's people that will do that. But that's not right. No, if, you got, if somebody's got a demon spirit, you've got to get permission from them when they're in the right mind or, or whenever it might be. And, or if they're a child, you can get permission from mom and dad because they have authority over them. And, and then you can take authority over the thing and go. Amen. This is talking about people that had sickness and disease that was caused by something. Now, remember in Mark chapter 9, now we don't have to go there. I didn't uh, prepare anything out of, out of that one. But Mark chapter 9, when uh, Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he came down off the Mount of Transfiguration and he came to his disciples and the disciples, he had taken three of them up there. Uh, Peter, James, and John had gone up and they saw the Transfiguration. They came on down and the nine disciples that were left were all gathered around this one particular individual who had brought their son. 
to be healed of epilepsy. And they, they brought him there and he, he asked them some questions and they did some ministering. Then Jesus cast the demon out of the, out of the boy and he was cured. Now that was a situation where a, a, a condition, epilepsy, was caused by a demon spirit. Jesus perceived it and cast it off. The disciples came to him later on and down the road we're going to get into this for, for other, other reasons. But uh, he said, why couldn't we cast out the demon? They didn't say, why couldn't we heal him? They said, why couldn't we cast out the demon? So obviously they knew it was a demon-caused uh, condition and they went after the demon. And other demons had listened to him, why couldn't we cast this one out? And so then Jesus ministers him on that. We'll get into that sometime in the, in the future. Not sure when. Might be next week. Might be a year from now. Not... <laughs> we're we're going to be dealing with some fasting in this area. And so we'll, we will get onto, onto that one. I've got a lot of different areas that we're going to get into in this. And um, I, a few of you, if you have, have asked some questions on, on some of it. Faith is still out there. You know, we, we haven't dipped into the area of faith yet. We're going to be, be looking at that. But we'll even look into, into some things. I, I mentioned to a few of you. We're going to look into some things about grief. Grief has its, uh, has its foundation on this. And you know what? We have a lot of misunderstandings on this. I wasn't even intending to get into that. I was meditating on these things and God dropped something down in my spirit about the grief. Oh, I did not see that before. And so, thank you for that. So I wrote it down. That was a month ago. <laughs> we'll get into this. I, I know we'll get into it. But, you know, it's just the progression of things. You, we'll get there eventually. But I think it'll help you out when we get to that. Amen. But we're here now. This is not three different conditions. This is one person, one type of condition. They cannot get to the meeting. It's a, it's a disease that is caused by something external and left them in a place where uh, there was no real your cure for them. And they took these, these aprons and these handkerchiefs out. Really, it doesn't matter who brought them, women, men. It doesn't really matter even what they were made of. That's just what they had. They had handkerchiefs and they had aprons. If they would have had something else, they would have used it. If they had a wallet, they probably would have used the wallet. If they had a purse, they probably would have used the purse. It didn't matter what it was that they used. Verse 13. See, we got into all that to get to here. <laughs> then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by, Jesus, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this before we go any further with it. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, how many know that's more than one? Took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Of those some, there were seven sons of Sceva. They were not the only ones doing this. There were others. But of all the ones that were doing it, we're going to bring out these guys. There were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest. There's a couple of ideas of what the chief priests exactly were. They were not the high priest. There was a high priest. Uh, remember, the, the, the priestly line was divided into 24 orders. And the chief priest could be the head of each of those orders. That could be what it is. There's even been supposition that the chief priest is some uh, people that were in line to be high priest or could possibly be high priest or had been high priest. 
So, I don't know, but it's a... Uh, we'll just call them chief priests because that's what the Bible calls them. There were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. Now, how many were here when uh, Joe McGee was out? You remember, remember Joe McGee? Joe McGee was very humorous with this. And he was uh, talking about how these guys had a whole business set up. You know, one call 1-800-SKIVA. <laughs> it was very humorous. Of course, Joe was very, very humorous in, in these things. And, you know, we all laughed at that. But basically, you know, was, they had a business going on. You had a demon spirit? Call us up. We'll come over. We'll exercise it. And now you have to have success in order for people to call. Right? If you had termites or ants or bugs in your house and you were going to call an exterminator and that exterminator came out and he treated your house and nothing changed. And your neighbors called them out and nothing changed. And time after time, people come out and nothing changes. How many of y'all know we're not going to be calling them people anymore? It doesn't change. You want If you call an exterminator, you want things to change. You want there to be less bugs, less ants, less spiders, less destructive. You don't want them around. You want them to be gone. Even if they're not doing any good or any harm. We had a, we had this one type of bug that would come in our, our backyard and they would just be all over the side, the back side of the house. They didn't do anything. They didn't bite you. They didn't sting you. Uh, they just were on the house. All over. All over the house. There'll be lots of them. So we went over there and we got that, uh, that seven product. You ever see that, that spray stuff seven? So, uh, that, am I saying it right? Yeah, okay. Maybe I don't, don't use it all that much, but anyway, we put it on the end of a hose and we're spraying them down, spraying them down, spraying, and they're dying. Just dropping, like, just piles of them all over the place. And they come back. And, and so we'd, uh, we, Spray them again. So then we got an exterminator. What are we going to do with these things? So uh, he treated them. Still came back. And I don't know who it was. I don't know if it was one of the exterminators or if it was uh, uh, somebody else who came on by. But there was this one particular tree that was in our backyard. And he says, uh, they, he saw these things. He said, oh, this is a particular bug. They love this type of tree. And so he was looking around. And he saw it in the back. That's the tree they like. And they were all over it. They said, cut that tree down. It didn't take us long. It was a little tree. It was not all that big of a tree. It was a little tree. We cut that tree down. You know what? We don't have any trouble with those bugs anymore. <laughs> They're gone. That's good. They weren't doing any harm, but you all know you just don't like them. You don't want those things just crawling all over. Had some color to them, but we didn't need that kind of color <laughs> going on. So, obviously, if they have a business set up, they've had success. Now, how is it that somebody not using the name of Jesus can have success with demon spirits? Doesn't that, doesn't that get you to think about this a little bit? Give you some pause in this? Hmm. So, the seven sons of Sceva were among those who did so, but they are not the only ones. There were other ones. It says they were sons of a Jewish high priest. Luke chapter 11, you may remember this verse. Verse, verse of scripture, the passage in, beginning in verse 15. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. 
Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. These are probably the people that he's referring to. 1-800-SKIVA. <laughs> he probably knows about them. He's saying, you know, who do your sons cast them out by? But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. What a strong man... When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stranger, or, sorry, when a stronger than he comes upon him and overtakes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of the man is worse than the first. We'd have read that second part uh, before. But I want you to see this. Now he says that if uh, if he casts out demons by Beelzebub that means that Satan's kingdom is divided. Now how many of you have ever p- pulled this from this verse of scripture that Satan does not cast out Satan? But Jesus doesn't teach it. What he says is, if Satan casts out Satan, his kingdom is divided and it won't stand. Is, this, is the devil's kingdom going to stand? No. Uh-uh. Because it's a divided kingdom. It will not stand. So he's not saying that the devil cannot cast out the devil. Don't get, don't get that from him. Not saying that he's, he's saying that the, if, if it's cast out, then it's either God or, or Satan or whatever it is. We'll learn a little bit from just the wording that is used here. So anyway, these seven sons, that could be the ones that Jesus is referring to. But it, it talks, it uses the word here when it says that they would exercise the demon with the name of, in fact, pull up, pull up a verse in Acts again. Let me just read it instead of going all the way back. Actually, uh, go all the way back to the beginning. Then. then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, that's that word there, took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those whom had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. We exercise you. That word there that is translated exercise you is one that binds by an oath or a spell. One that binds by an oath or a spell. The usual word that is used when it speaks about the Jesus or disciples casting out a demon spirit is ekbalo. Now, when I was going through Greek class, this was one of those words that was real easy to remember. Balo is the word for throw. I always remembered it because it has the word ball. That's how I remembered it. Ball, oh, ball, throw ball. Okay, I can get that one done. Ek means out. It's basically to throw out. It's basically what the, the word is. Or to cast out as it's put in here. What Jesus wants us to do with the demon spirits is to cast them out. What an exorcist done does is binds them up. Can you see the difference? If you take a person, 
I don't like you being here and bind them up, they're still here. And if they ever get through the, of those, uh, the bondages that they have, then they're going to be, uh, be in trouble. It's kind of like when you're at home, you know, you're at home with, uh, your family, you're watching one of those mysteries. One of those mystery movies. And you know, the, the people are in the house and the, the bad person's in the house and you're all, all scared and all nervous, all the bad person's in the house and she's going to hurt the good people in the house. And, uh, all of a sudden the good people, they get the bad person under control. Right? And they tie them up. Right? What happens when the bad, when the good people tie up the bad person and leave him in the house? What happens? He gets out, doesn't he? He always gets out. And you're inside, you're telling yourself, no, don't leave him there. He is going to get undone. You know it. And you're, you're shouting at them. Get him out. Right? You want that, you want that bad guy cast out. That's what Jesus wants. He wants the bad guy out. Cast him out. Don't bind him up. So they would do this spell on the demon spirit to bind up the demon spirit, but they didn't cast the demon spirit out. They bound him up. What happens when that demon spirit got free? And so they would have results, but those results wouldn't last forever. But some results is better than no results, right? So they still had a business. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) Now, notice we don't know the name of this evil spirit. We just know him as evil spirit. Jesus, I know him. Paul, yeah, I know him. I have no idea who you guys are. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, I don't know how many of you all have been in a fight before, but have you ever been in a fight and while you're fighting them, try and take their clothes off? <laughs> how do you do that? I don't know how you do that. I mean, are you ripping the clothes or what are we doing here that we are also fighting you, subduing you, and removing your clothing? I don't understand it, but apparently that's what they were doing. This is the second case where we see a demon spirit come upon somebody and they have greater strength than they should. There's seven of these sons there. They overpowered them, took all their clothes off and cast them out naked. We're not running out of the house. Not only were they naked, they were wounded. This became known to both to, to the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds now let me tell you something that's not in the scriptures here but it is very much implied sometime at some point the seven sons of Sceva and others invoked the name of Jesus and it worked This time it didn't. But sometimes it did. Do you remember that Jesus once taught them, taught a, a story, and had the, the people there, the sheep and the goats? And after he said, you all, on my left, your goats, depart from me. I never knew you. But, but Lord, 
<laughs> we cast out demons in your name. Didn't he say that? And he said, Jesus said to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Now you can argue the doctrine all you want to, whether you can or not. I just go with Jesus. Apparently Jesus said that you can do that. I don't know why. I don't know how. But apparently you can. But somehow they had incorporated this and it was, it must have worked some that they kept doing it. And all of a sudden they got one who was a little bit tougher and said, wait a minute, I'm going to listen to you guys. And they beat him and jumped on him and chased him out of the house. Now these guys had a method they used that worked. Now here's the question, I, I think I put this in your outline for you. Why change? Why change what works? Why do you change a method? If you have a method that's working and it's earning you money, why change it? So I wrote this, I gave you some blanks on this one. You can fill these in if you want. They either are trying to protect what they have. We got a 1-800 business here. We got to keep this going. Everybody's going over to Paul. We can't have them going over to Paul. We got to keep them ourselves. So they're trying to protect what they have or gain what they are missing. That's the only reason you change something, right? If you had a restaurant and things are going good, you don't change anything. But if a new restaurant opens up down the road, and some of your people are leaving and going there. You need to change something in order to keep them. You got to protect what you got. Or if you're thinking, you know what? We have a restaurant up near us. And uh, my, my family thinks it's Nikolai. He's, he's, he loves this one. I told him about it a while ago. It is a Mexican and Italian restaurant all in one. Yeah, you haven't heard that before, have you? So you can go there for pizza or enchiladas. <laughs> now, it's not exactly Mexican. Nikolai, what is it? Remember the, do you remember the nationality? Guatemalan? Okay, it might be, might be Guatemalan. But um, yeah, they, have, they don't have great nachos. Oh, not nachos. You, know, you want chips and the salsa to come out? Yeah, that's lousy. There's, there's nothing, nothing good there at all. I mean, they put these pinto beans on it and this uh, other stuff on it. It's just it's not normal. I don't know. I don't know. It's unusual. Unusual. Never been to a place that had <laughs> this stuff. But it's just down the road from us. And they have, um, you know, they have, they have enchilada and they had the best Mexican rice I've ever had. Oh, it's good. You mix that in there with the tomatillo sauce and, mm, man, it is. We do all right. But don't bring your kids. They have absolutely zero for kids. They don't have even chocolate milk, apple juice. They don't have kids' meals. They got nothing for their kids. If the kids won't eat pizza, you are up a creek. <laughs> it's not going to work for you. But anyway, what if you had it a, at a Mexican restaurant and there was no Italian restaurant around? You said, you know what? There's a whole other section of, of people we could get. Let's open up an Italian restaurant in our Mexican restaurant to try and get more people to come on in. So either you're trying to protect what you have or gain something you're missing. That's where these guys are at. But we are not called, commanded, or tasked with the idea of exercising anything. Demons or whatever. We're told to cast them out. That's what we're, we're there to do. Cast out. Ekbalo. Out. out. Get out. 
We don't want to just tie them up, leave them in the room, because we all know what happens to the bad people when they get tied up and left in the room. Verse 19, Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and they totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So they took all these magic books, and they didn't just say, we're not going to use them anymore, they burned them up. Got rid of it. Now, if you're ever wondering, well, this, this person casting out demons by the Spirit of God or by some other means, just take a look at who's being magnified. If we're magnifying 1-800-SKIVA get, get, to get the money, well, we don't have to wonder. Paul, he was magnifying God. He wasn't promoting any kind of 800 number, any place to, to come in and, and, and do this. He just, uh, he had the anointing on him and he just, just went after him. Now, these men have overstepped their boundaries, haven't they? They've gone in a place they're not supposed to go. And apparently some demon spirits didn't call them on it. And they just left. But uh, eventually one of them did. Now after this one did, how many of you all know the rest of them got wise? Hey, we don't have to listen. Did you see what? <laughs> I'm not listening either. Try, Go ahead, try that one on me. <laughs> so that probably put an end to this, this going on. But they had overstepped their boundaries and they uh, they got hurt. Many believers are not walking within what they're called to do. They're not walking within the boundaries. You're called to go lay hands on the sick. You're called to do that. God said. Jesus commissioned the disciples. He commissioned us. Great commission. Go out there and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things. For lo, I I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So go out there and make disciples. Don't just get converts, make disciples. These are the things we have to do. But you have to know your boundaries. You have to know what's what's going on. It is amazing to me how much boundaries we just don't know. Just even, uh, how many on, you can't help but uh, hear about the impeachment stuff going on, right? And um, I just get amazed at how much ignorance there is of the Constitution, of what goes on. Because our news media, I mean, they should know it. They should know better than, than what goes on. But uh, not going on what side is right and what side is wrong. I'm not messing with all that that sort of stuff. Uh, I have my opinion on it. I'm sure you have your opinion on it. We might even agree. We might not. Don't matter. The Constitution lays out what happens in an impeachment. In an impeachment, in the House, the House calls witnesses. They build a case. They vote on whether they should impeach or not. If they vote to impeach, then, the, then they appoint managers. They go on over and they present the case to the Senate. The Senate does not retry the case. The Senate listens to the case presented and then goes to a vote. And they vote, yes, we agree with you that he should be impeached, or no, we don't. That's the process. Now, the House can make their own rules, but that's the process. So when the House made their own rules and said, we will only have uh, witnesses that we as the majority want, the minority party cannot call witnesses. And we say, well, that's unfair. They can still make the rules. We may not like it, but they can make the rules that way. So, as it went, the Republicans could call no witnesses. In fact, a lot of times they were barred from even questioning them. And then it was all done in a super secret chamber so that we wouldn't know what actually went on in there. That's not how it's supposed to go, but they can make their rules as to how they ordained the thing. But then the media comes on out and it's like the Senate is stepping over their bounds 
by not hearing more witnesses. The Senate can choose to have more witnesses they want if they decide to do that. They are their own governing body. They can do so. But the process is that the case is made in the House. The witnesses are heard in the House. The case is made, sent over to the Senate, which the Senate will hear it. They can then ask questions on it. They determine how long the issue is going to be. Remember, they, they set out two days of, well, it was originally two days, and they went to three days for the uh, presenting. And then they, uh, uh, two days for the, for the questioning. And, and, and that's how it went. And then they can, they want to vote on the, on the, um, on the witnesses. And the media is trying to make you think that they have totally broken protocol by doing this. They don't have to call witnesses. The witnesses were supposed to be called in the house. But if you're ignorant of the Constitution, how things are set up, then you're thinking, oh, they're doing something underhanded here. They're not. But, um, it's just the, now the, the news media, they know the Constitution. They do know it. They may not, they may not follow it. They might like it, but they do know it. And uh, it's just, it's, it's a shame that this kind of stuff goes on. But when they do that, it's just a, a matter of trying to stir up strife and make people, um, go in a certain, certain direction. So it's up to the Senate. They can do what they want. And then they'll, they'll vote on whether to impeach or not based on the, the evidence that's there or whatever is, is presented. Of course, there's always these last minute things, you know, well, I know there's a whole lot made about Bolden. Isn't it interesting Bolden suddenly has such in, imperative stuff to hear that it wasn't imperative a couple of months ago? I don't understand how that could be. This this is anything new that he's got. This is stuff that he's had from, uh, oh, what, a year or two or however long it was. But they're making you think that this is uh, this is all crazy, crazy stuff. But anyway, that's the process. Like the process, don't like the process, whatever. That's how it is laid out in the Constitution. And um, we may not like the the way that the House did the, the trial. We may think that it should have gone another way and been fair, to, to, in our mind to be fair. But it is up to them. They're in the majority party. They can call the rules as they want to. And they called the rules as they did. We get to call witnesses, you don't. And then they, they come on over to the Senate. But the House has no authority in the Senate. Just like the Senate has no authority in the House. They are two separate branches. And I, to me, this is all very simple. But uh, I know the news media can mess them up. I don't listen to them. I don't want to hear what they have to say. I go by Facebook and I see stuff on the impeachment. I just keep going. I just keep going. Don't need to, don't have that. But if you understand the bounds, if you understand the boundaries where you're supposed to be, you can operate within it. Many Christians don't know where their bounds are. Because of that, the devil is able to move in on your territory. He's getting you to do things you're not supposed to do. How many, how many people have believed God for somebody else's healing? Ah, oh, so and so, I mean, they're sick. Oh, I tell you. They, oh, I want God to heal them so much. I am praying and believing that God would heal them. Their faith has nothing to do with it. Their faith is what's going on. You can get over there and minister to their faith. You can get over there and, and, uh, let the Spirit of God be on you with the anointing and say, can I lay hands on you? Yeah, you can lay hands on me. You can get involved that way. But I cannot believe for you to receive from God. Can't do it. I may want with everything in me for you to get a new job, for you to get healed, for you to be free of pain. Everything in me may say, I want you to be free of this. But I cannot believe and receive that for you. You have to do your own believing and you have to do your own receiving. Nobody else can do it for you. 
But, you know, we start getting our heartstrings tugged. You can't believe for somebody else's salvation. How can you believe for somebody else's healing? can't believe for somebody else's salvation. How can you believe for somebody else's job? They've got to do their own believing. They've got to do their own trusting in God. Understanding the boundaries. And uh, when we see Jesus ministering and we look at some of the boundaries he operated under, it will, it will help you out with that. But walk within what you're supposed to be walking in. There's some places that God has given you. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. That means you have the ability to go out and talk to people about Jesus. The enemy is going to come and tries to get in your head and say, oh, you'll get tongue-tied. Oh, you don't know enough of the word yet. Oh, but you don't have this. Throw all that out. Remember our man last week? He got the demons cast out of him. And what did he go about doing? Told all that Jesus had done for him. He didn't have any kind of education. Didn't go to seminary. Hadn't been uh, schooled in all the things of the ways of the word. He just went out and told what Jesus had done for him. You know what? Go out and tell what Jesus had done. If it worked for him, it would work for you. And lots of people came along and they believed because of the man's testimony. What he said. Don't let the devil talk you out of operating in your territory. If you're sitting next to somebody in a restaurant, in a grocery store, standing next to somebody in a grocery store, and you're, you see somebody over there and the Spirit of God is tugging you, go talk to them. You know what? They're in your territory. Why? Because God said go talk to them. So you're just going over there and talk to them. Well, I don't know if they want me to. <laughs> we'll go and find out. I love talking to strangers. I didn't used to. I didn't like talking to people I know. <laughs> <laughs> When I was a kid growing up, I didn't like talking to people that I know. Let alone talk to strangers. I'd rather just get in the room, just leave me alone. I hope nobody sees me. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> but now I walk into a place and there's people over there. And, hey, how you doing? I just start talking to them. You know, they got a shirt on. I'll talk to them about what their shirt says. If they have a, uh, they're a fan. You know, even if they have a Dallas shirt on. You know, I can talk to them about Dallas. I can do it. <laughs> I can. And be genuine about it too. I don't care if they're a Dallas fan. I don't care if they're a Washington fan or a New York fan. No matter to me. Well, not, we got to draw the line somewhere. No, no. <laughs> no, we'll, I'll even talk to Pittsburgh Steelers fans. But not Penguins. But you go up there, you, you just find places that you can have a conversation with. And you can work your way on over to, to, to find out why God had you come over. You don't have to go up to him and say, oh, God wants me to talk to him. Brother, you need to be saved. <laughs> Probably won't work. You don't have to do it that way. But operate within your territory. Pretty soon the devil's going to learn, I cannot let my people get near him. And he's going to keep people out. Don't go, don't go near that one. Stay out of there. I don't think I put it in your outline. But how can we pursue the unusual if we first don't walk in the usual? You've got to be walking in the things that are usual before you can walk in the things like Paul did that are unusual. How long has Paul been walking in the usual? 
before God did unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. There's a whole lot of Christians out there, they want to do some unusual things for God, but they're not doing the usual. What's the usual? Laying hands on the sick. Sharing the gospel. Being friendly, nice, loving other people. Extending mercy and grace. These are all usual things. These are things we're supposed to be doing. If I walk in the usual, then I can walk in the unusual. But if I'm not walking in the usual, then the usual becomes unusual. (laughs) But God wants you to walk in the usual stuff. He's commissioned you to lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now, it's an unusual thing. It didn't happen all the time, but it did happen in the Word of God that they they, uh, went over to dead people and raised them up. So a few times it was it was done in the in the Word of God. Elijah was the first one. I don't know if it, it at least the first one recorded. How unusual was that for him? Go over and raise that dead one up. Really? Can you imagine being the first one to raise somebody up from the dead? Whew, that's unusual. But he did it. Paul did. He he, he raised some people up who were dead. Jesus raised some people up that were dead. But not everybody raised people up that were dead. That's more into the unusual area. But walk in the usual. Don't let the devil talk out of it. You got somebody at work, they have a headache. What should you do? Do you want some aspirin? How about, I'll lay hands on you and pray for you. Well, they may not be saved. That's okay. You can lay hands and pray for people that are not saved. For healing. You can do it. It's in the Word of God. I lay hands on them and pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Let them know that there's joy on the inside of you. Pretty soon they're going to say, why are you always so full of joy? Let me tell you. I serve a, mm-hmm. serve a risen Savior. Would you all stand up with me? Today is our communion Sunday. Today we remember that Jesus was sent here on this earth to live life victorious over sin and in that victory to go to the cross for us. Thank you. To die for our sins. Living the life Victory over sin is what gave him the opportunity to be our Savior on the cross. He was one who was victorious. The devil did try and tempt him, pull him into sin, but he didn't get there. So rushers are bringing the elements around. Jesus told us to remember what he did on the cross by this in communion. And before the supper was enjoyed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Jesus divided us up into two parts because he knew that we would forget one and only remember the other. Or maybe we would forget both even. But his body was, was broken, beaten, None of his bones were broken, but his body 
was beaten. Said he was more broken, more, more beaten than any man. Almost unrecognizable. But he did that for you. He did that so that you would be free from sickness and disease. He broke the power that sickness and disease had over you. He broke the power that sin had over you. He broke the condemnation that was upon us. And he did it all because of his love for you. So right before he was crucified, he told his disciples, this do in remembrance of me. This represents my body, which is broken for you. He freed us from sickness and disease. Doesn't mean that sickness and disease just goes. It means we have a way for it to go. As we eat together, let's remember the work that Jesus did in his body on that day. After supper, he put a whole meal in between so that he would know, we would know that there's a break between. There's a difference between the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. His body had nothing to do with the forgiveness of our sins. It was his blood. The blood of Jesus, the blood of this spotless lamb was poured out for us. He has redeemed us. He has bought us back. We are free from the power of sin. And we have the forgiveness that God has given us through his name, through the work of the cross. So we drink together. Let's remember there is nothing we need to add. What Jesus did was all. Doesn't need your penance. Doesn't need your, your sorrow. Doesn't need your vows to do this or that or the other thing. All we do is receive the forgiveness of sins. Let's remember together as we drink. Glory to God. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross. I thank you that that name is above all names. The demon spirits have to listen. Sickness and disease has to go. Because of the authority of the name of Jesus, not because of anything on us. All because of Him. I thank you, Father, that we are free from what once had us bound. And we give you the glory and the praise for that. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Keith.